Today, the Matt Wall Show was a disastrous day for Joe Biden. First, his DOJ essentially declared him mentally unfit for office. Then he accidentally confirmed the charge by giving the most catastrophic press conference I've ever seen from a president. And this was all made worse by the contrast between Biden and the president of Russia, whose interview with Tucker Carlson was posted yesterday as well. Also, the Democrat mayor of a small town scams her constituents out of thousands of dollars, but says that they have no right to question her about it because she's a black woman. A Hollywood actor says that he had to seek therapy to deal with bad reviews and the internet rallies around a homeless guy, raises almost half a million dollars for him, only to find out that he's actually a violent criminal. Shocker. All of that and more today on The Matt Walsh Show. We're experiencing a lot of global instability as we plunge into the new year. North Korea is testing missiles. Iran is growing increasingly aggressive. And oh, by the way, we have a presidential election coming up in November. So how do you protect your family in the midst of all this chaos? A great place to start is by protecting your savings. It's not too late to invest in gold with Birch Gold Group today. Unlike many other investments, gold can act as a safe haven investment during turbulent times by providing a hedge against inflation and economic uncertainty. Birch Gold will help you convert your existing IRA or 401k into a tax-sheltered IRA in gold and it will cost you nothing out of pocket. While diversification does not eliminate risk entirely, uh, Birch Gold's experts can help you manage and reduce, providing a more resilient foundation for your financial well-being. I urge you to talk to one of their trusted experts today. All you gotta do though is text Walsh to 989898 and Birch Gold will send you a free info kit on gold. With an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau, countless five-star reviews and thousands of happy customers, I encourage you to check out Birch Gold today. They've been the exclusive gold company of The Daily Wire for the past seven years. We trust them, and you can trust them too. Text Walsh to 989898 to claim your free info kit today. That's Walsh to 989898 to secure your savings now. Yesterday marked the clearest and most convincing sign yet that Joe Biden will not be the Democratic Party's nominee for president this year. And uh, that, that doesn't mean that it definitely won't happen. Nobody can predict the future, but it does mean that Nobody with any power in Washington wants Biden to run for office again. That, that much is very, very clear. The day began with a report prepared by Joe Biden's own DOJ that outlines Biden's mental decline in excruciating detail. And the top line conclusion, as you've probably seen by now, is that the commander in chief is so far gone, so detached from reality, so unaware of his own surroundings, that he can't even be charged with a crime. He's not legally responsible for his own conduct at this point. In interviews with the special counsel, Biden couldn't remember whether he was vice president in 2009. He couldn't pinpoint the date of his son Bo's death, even within a span of several years. Again, this is the conclusion of a special counsel working for Joe Biden's own Justice Department. Special counsel determined effectively that the president of the United States is too mentally incompetent to be held responsible for his own actions. So this is, to my knowledge anyway, the first time in American history when a president's own DOJ has declared him essentially unfit for office. And yet somehow that wasn't even the worst of the bad news for Joe Biden yesterday. You thought it couldn't, like it can't possibly get worse than that. It's like his, something historically awful uh, happening, which is being declared incompetent by your own DOJ. How could it get worse in the same day? But, uh, but it did. Because on about 10 minutes notice, the White House press office announced a press conference at 7.45 p.m. Now, especially by Biden's standards, this is extremely unusual. It's rare enough to, for Biden to give a press conference at all. Uh, he, he doesn't often give them. Much less an unscheduled one, much less one in the evening. Now, we know that usually he's in bed by 6 o'clock. And on top of that, Biden's handlers apparently sent him out to the podium without a list of pre-approved journalists to call on, which... which Again, almost never happens. So Grandpa Joe was left to fend entirely for himself. And naturally, the press conference went pretty much exactly as you would expect it would, or, or maybe somehow even worse. In fact, I don't think it's hyperbole to say that Biden delivered the single most catastrophic press conference I can remember from a president in my entire lifetime. At, at no point did he allay any of the concerns about his competence or fitness for office. Um, when that was the, supposed to be the whole point of the press conference, was that topic. The whole point of the press conference is, is the topic of his own mental fitness. And they sent him stumbling out there in the evening with no preparation. So instead of reassuring Americans about the president's mental fitness, it did the opposite. He made it abundantly clear that 
he needs to be removed from office immediately. And all of this is even more confounding when you consider that, again, given the time of day, the impromptu nature of the press conference, the topic that Biden was out there to discuss, and the fact that questions were not picked ahead of time, it was pretty much guaranteed to be a disaster. And it's a disaster that the White House walked right into, seemingly on purpose, which makes you ask uh, a lot of questions, which we'll get to. But here's how the press conference began. Watch. In addition, I know there's some attention paid to some language in the report about my recollection of events. There's even reference that I don't remember when my son died. How in the hell dare he raise that? Frankly, when I was asked the question, I thought to myself, it wasn't any of their damn business. Let me tell you something. Some of you have commented, I wear since the day he died, every single day, the rosary he got from Our Lady of... Every Memorial Day, we hold a service remembering him, attending by friends and family and the people who loved him. I don't need anyone. I don't need anyone to remind me when he passed away or passed away. So Biden does not deny that he couldn't remember when his son died, nor does he explain how this topic came up exactly. Of course, if you've listened to Biden talk at any point in the past few years, you can assume that he brought it up unprompted to garner sympathy with the special counsel because that's his usual strategy. But Biden doesn't address any of that. Instead, he just lashes out angrily at the prosecutor. Then he mentions a rosary, but he can't complete the story because he doesn't remember where it's from. So not exactly a convincing performance, unless the point is to convince us that Biden is a vegetable, uh, which it certainly uh, you know, succeeded in doing that, but it gets worse. Here's the first question Biden took from Fox's Peter Ducey. Watch. Thank you, and I'll take some questions. President Biden, something the special counsel said in his report is that one of the reasons you were not charged is because, in his description, you are a well-meaning elderly man with a poor memory. I'm well-meaning, and I'm an elderly man, and I know what the hell I'm doing. I've been president, and I put this country back on its feet. I don't need his recommendation. It's How totally bad out. is your memory, and can you continue as president? My memory is so bad, I let you speak. That's, you, uh, that's, that's your what, memory has gotten worse, Mr. So President? Look, my memory is not good. My memory is fine. My memory, take a look at what I've done since I've become president. None of you thought I could pass any of the things I got passed. How'd that happen? You know, I guess I just forgot what was going on. Take a look at the things that, uh, tell me what I've done since I became president, because I can't remember. Take a look at what I've done. Someone take a look and, and repeat to me, because I have no idea. My memory is so bad, I let you speak, he says. That's the President of the United States saying that, uh, which you almost want to give him credit because that, that is a, like a pretty good comeback. Uh, it's, it's maybe like you want to give him credit for, that's maybe the wittiest thing we've ever heard Biden say, except that, except that this, again, is, is, is actually a symptom of senility that he has no filter. Like that's not something that you say out loud. You could tell after he, he doesn't even play it off like he meant to say it because he says, uh, your memory is so bad, I let you speak. And then he kind of pauses because it's clear he didn't mean to say that out loud. So even that one thing you want to give him credit for, you can't. He says he's just a well-meaning elderly man who uh, knows what the hell he's doing. And if you ask him about the fact that he can't remember when his son died or when he was vice president, he'll imply that, you know, you should be prevented from speaking. Now, nobody in the room is really laughing at this, including the journalists from left-wing outlet, outlets. So they, they have apparently received the all clear to ask Biden some hard questions for the first time ever. Because corporate media doesn't want him to run again. So that, that's another thing that made the press conference last night so jarring is that it was a like a hostile environment from the press towards a Democrat president. We never see that. And that's because they were all given the go-ahead uh, by their puppet masters to actually embarrass this guy because they want him out. So a CNN reporter named MJ Lee pressed him with a Simple and straightforward question about his mental capacity. And instead of calmly answering the question, Joe Biden snapped. Again, watch. For months when you were asked about your age, 
he would respond with the words, watch me. Watch Many American people have been watching, and they have expressed concerns about your age. That is they, your judgment. They, that is your is judgment. That is not the judgment concerns. of the press. They express concerns about your mental acuity. They say that you are too old. Mr. President, in December, you told me that you believe there are many other Democrats who could defeat Donald Trump. So why does it have to be you now? Why, what is your answer to that question? Because I'm the most qualified person in this country to be president of the United States and finish the job I started. Most qualified person to be president. Well, if that's true, then we're just done. We're done as a country, so might as well just wrap it up. Pack it in if that if that's true. Thankfully, it isn't. Uh, CNN reporter wants to know, of course, if Biden is mentally stable. Biden barks at her. And then the CNN reporter suggests that, that maybe he isn't the best person to be running for office. And, you know, he doesn't have a convincing answer to that question either. Uh, so we are witnessing the end of uh, Biden's legitimacy to the extent that he ever had any to begin with. Whatever whatever shreds of it he may have had are now just gone. They're, they're burned in a fiery flame, uh, even his once reliable allies in the corporate press have turned on him. And you can see why. At one point in this emergency press conference that was supposedly intended to reassure Americans that the president is mentally competent, uh, Biden refers to the president of Egypt as the president of Mexico. The conduct of the response in in the Gaza Strip has been um, over the top. I think that, uh, as you know, initially the president of Mexico, Sisi, did not want to open up the gate to allow humanitarian material to get in. I talked to him. I convinced him to open the gate. I talked to Bibi to open the gate on the Israeli side. Well, you know, Mexico uh, over there, bordering, uh, you know, it's uh, over there in, 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 in the midst of, uh, of all this is, is Mexico somehow. Now, now, the thing is, like, Biden does still have some people in the press that are trying to run cover for him. And uh, so they, tr- they tried to claim that it was a, s- a slip of the tongue or he's, it's a, he's just, you know, a mis- it's a, he's misspeaking. But that's not, that is not a normal mistake to make. Like, why, we're talking about Egypt. Why would Mexico come up? So that's not, it's not a slip of the tongue. That's just your brain is misfiring uh, in, a, in a sort of, uh, in a way that reveals some real brain damage that he is obviously suffering. Which means that, you know, whoever arranged this press conference is either criminally incompetent or they were trying to sabotage Biden's candidacy. Those are really the only two options. This was entirely predictable. Biden essentially confirmed everything the special counsel said. He even he even called himself an elderly man in the press conference, which, of course, isn't new. We know news. We know that he's elderly. But these are not the kinds of things that you should be saying in this situation. Why would you want to put a sound clip out there of you saying, I am an elderly man? I mean, now, as I mentioned earlier, the special counsel investigating Biden's handling of classified documents found that, quote, uh, in his interview with our office, Mr. Biden did not remember when he was vice president, forgetting on the first day of the interview when his term ended. And forgetting on the second day of the interview when his term began, he did not remember even within several years when his son Bo died, and his memory appeared hazy when describing the Afghanistan debate that was once so important to him. Among other things, he mistakenly said he had, he had a real difference of opinion with General Carl Eikenberry, when in fact Eikenberry was an ally whom Mr. Biden cited approvingly in his Thanksgiving memo to President Obama. The memo continues, we have also considered that at trial, Mr. Biden would likely present himself to a jury, as he did during our interview with him as a sympathetic, well-meaning elderly man with a poor memory. Based on our direct interactions with and observations of him, he is someone for whom many jurors will want to identify reasonable doubt. Uh, it would be difficult to convince a jury that they should convict him by, uh, by then a former president well into, well into his 80s of a serious uh, felony that requires a mental state of willfulness. Now, before I go any further, it needs to be mentioned that this, I mean, the reasoning is completely absurd. The only relevant information for the purposes of bringing a criminal prosecution is Biden's mental state when he committed the alleged crimes. And according to the special counsel, as far back as more than a decade ago, Joe Biden willfully retained and disclosed classified documents with classification markings on them. That includes classified documents from his time in the Senate several decades ago. The documents were in his, quote, garage, offices, and basement den in both Virginia and Delaware. Again, Biden retained these documents many years ago. There's no suggestion that he had Alzheimer's or amnesia back then. 
So if that's a crime, he should be prosecuted for it. If he's not mentally competent to stand trial, that's a, that's a defense that his lawyers can raise after charges have been brought. It's not the special counsel's job to lay off on the charges because he's elderly now. It's not their job to say, well, probably the jury will find that we'll be sympathetic to him. So we're not going to bring charges. How often do you hear that from a prosecutor? We're not going to bring these charges because we figured ahead of time that the jury will find him sympathetic. What? Now, this is especially uh, absurd given that the DOJ is going after Donald Trump for allegedly storing classified documents, even though Donald Trump, as president, had the authority to declassify whatever he wanted. Not to mention, if being elderly is a defense, well, then Trump is elderly too and is only a few years younger. Now, but at this point, no one is surprised by the fact that the DOJ is prosecuting Trump for a crime while giving Biden a pass for committing the exact same crime. That was always a given. What is surprising, again, is why Joe Biden's handlers let him take questions last night under these circumstances. It's almost like they were setting him up for disaster. That's especially true given the contrast. Like, of all nights to do this, last night was the worst possible night. Not that there could be a good night. Because of the contrast between Biden's remarks and the interview last night between Tucker Carlson and Russian President uh, Vladimir Putin. Now, Putin spoke with uh, Tucker Carlson for two hours, uninterrupted. In response to a question about why Russia invaded Ukraine, Putin recounted the history of his country in exacting, uh, excruciating detail going back centuries. It was quite dry, but it was you know, informative and it was dense. And Putin was clearly lucid and clear thinking. You know, he was more than capable of sitting for a lengthy adversarial interview with a journalist from a foreign country. That's remarkable, given the fact that, you know, for the past year, the media has told us that Putin is sick and frail and senile and, like, dying of cancer and he's in hiding. That's obviously not the case. But most of that is the case with our president. We're told that Biden isn't competent enough to be prosecuted, but is competent enough to have the most important job in the world for another five years. He's immune from committing crimes due to, due to his lack of mental capacity but he can have nuclear codes, apparently. I mean, it's laughable. And everybody knows it. They know that Biden has lost his mind. And now even the DOJ has confirmed it. It is a full-blown constitutional crisis if he stays in office. That's what we're facing. We have a president that everybody knows now is senile. Now, of course, the double-edged sword is that it's much better politically for Trump if, if Biden stays in like swapping Biden out for somebody younger who can speak in coherent sentences um, would make things more challenging for Trump. But, you know, politics are really a secondary concern at this point. The truth is that we simply cannot have a president who is not only senile, but is known to the world and to our adversaries to be senile. We just can't have it. It's, it's like it's a danger to everybody in this country. He needs to resign. And if he won't resign, he needs to be removed from office. He can be a well-meaning elderly man with a poor memory who lives out the remainder of his days off in obscurity somewhere, far away from the levers of power. I mean, the rest of us, people who intend to live in this country long after Biden is gone, which one way or another, he'll be gone pretty soon. We simply cannot tolerate having somebody like this in the White House any longer. Now let's get to our five headlines. If your house is feeling chilly right now, you may need to consider window replacements. I get it. For most homeowners, window replacement isn't something they've ever done before, and it may be a bit of a daunting task. Luckily, there's a company that will do the work for you. Renewal by Anderson is your one-stop shop for window design, manufacture, and installation. Windows play a crucial role in regulating indoor temperatures. If you notice a spike in your heating or your cooling bill, it may be due to inefficient windows. So don't put it off any longer. Renewal by Anderson offers limited fully transferable, and best-in-the-nation warranty coverage. Right now, Renewal by Anderson is offering a free in-home consultation on quality, energy-efficient, affordable windows or patio doors with special financing options. Text Walsh to 200 for a free consultation to buy one window or door and get one 40% off. Plus, you'll get $200 off your entire purchase as well. These savings won't last long, so be sure to check it out by texting Walsh to 200 That's Walsh to 200 Texting privacy policy and terms and conditions posted at textplan.us. Texting enrolls for recurring automated text marketing messages. Messaging data rates may apply. 
Reply stop to opt out. Minimum purchase required. Interest accrues from date of purchase, but is waived if paid within promotional period. Go to windowappointmentnow.com for full offer details. I thought Tucker did a great job in the uh, in that interview, by the way, uh, especially. And there was a lot of, uh, obviously, before Tucker, before we, they released the interview and it was announced that Tucker was going to interview Putin, um, in the media anyway, and on the left, there was this preemptive criticisms and assumptions about what the interview would, would be and that it would just be a propaganda effort by, uh, by Tucker on Putin's behalf. But to me, that was obviously not the case. I, I knew that wouldn't be the case going into it. And then you watch the interview and, uh, and, and that's not what happened. Um, and, it's very impressive, especially when you consider how incredibly challenging this is. That's the other point here. It's very easy to Monday morning quarterback an interview like this. But when it comes to interviews, this is pretty much the highest difficulty setting. I don't think you, I don't think you can, as an interviewer, be in a more difficult setting and have a more difficult interviewee than this. You're interviewing a foreign leader of an adversarial country through a translator, which is difficult, like even that part alone, take everything else out. I, I can't imagine, I would never do it. I wouldn't want to interview someone where I have to listen to a translator. That enough, that, that, that it would be distracting enough that I don't think I could do it. Um, so you're interviewing a foreign leader of an adversarial country through a translator on his home turf, you know, uh, knowing also that he has a history of imprisoning journalists. So, so, again, extremely difficult to do. And Tucker did push back. He asked probing questions. He asked good questions, I thought. And um, it was very impressive. And Putin, uh, even aside from all that, is a formidable person to interview just because of his depth and breadth of knowledge and his ability to uh, weave centuries of history into his answers. As many people have talked about in the first 30 minutes of the interview, when he's uh, asked to justify Russia's invasion of Ukraine, he goes back centuries and centuries and has this long, like, discursive, uh, uh, you know, lecture about Russian history. And uh, I, I don't know, that part of it has seems to be generally panned by people. They said it's kind of boring. I thought it was interesting. But talking to someone who's able to do that is, is you know, that, that, that notches the difficulty setting up even more. And I also think that when American audiences see something like this, and, and you start to see why the American press didn't want this interview to happen, they didn't want people to see it, it's because uh, American audiences see this kind of thing, and it's kind of it, it's confounding and it's sort of startling and strange for American audiences, because we just don't have political leaders who are like that. Here, uh, you know, which, which is which is also why you have other people in the media and on social media lecturing everyone else that you know you, you shouldn't be impressed with Putin's performance. You're, you're being pro-Putin. You're a KGB agent. Nobody's pro-Putin. Okay, relax. Stop being hysterical. Okay, stop being a hysterical child. It's just that American political leaders are almost entirely, with rare exception almost entirely intellectual lightweights. They just are. It wasn't always that way. It doesn't have to be that way, but, but it is that way right now. So you watch an interview like that and you, you, you first think to yourself, well, how many, I mean, certainly Biden. So the contrast with Biden is just, is disastrous for him. Uh, Biden couldn't sit for two hours, uh, you know, do a two hour interview with anybody under any circumstance. But how many how many American politicians could do that? Like, how many American politicians would even be capable of sitting for a two-hour discussion on camera with anybody? And um, and then and then, how many of them, if you asked them uh, to justify something that the United States is doing foreign policy-wise, how many of them would be able to get a give a thirty-minute answer that goes back hundreds of years into Western history? We have a few that could probably do that, but but very few, and you you can't help but notice that contrast, which is, um, I guess, an argument to start electing people that are you know capable of 
I don't know, capable of at least expressing, you know, forming thoughts and expressing them. Maybe we can, we can start with it. The bar's pretty low, so let's start with that and work from there. Uh, Daily Wire has this. Americans are seeking sinking deeper into financial struggles with a whopping $1.1 trillion in credit card debt, and a record number also cannot afford their rent. Credit card debt jumped by $50 billion in just the last quarter of the year, 4.6% more than the previous quarter, according to data released Tuesday by the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. Credit card debt hit uh, first hit a trillion dollars in August. Missed credit card payments are also rising among all age groups, especially people in their 30s, the data shows. New York Federal Reserve researchers told reporters, in the case of credit cards, it looks like the things have reverted to a level that is worse than pre-pandemic. Inflation and, spi- inflation and spiking rents are driving credit card debt. The total household debt also jumped $212 billion, up to $17.5 trillion in the last quarter of the year. Another factor of debt is rising car payments. Used car and new cars are, uh, are much more expensive than before the pandemic. Car loans rose by $12 billion in the last quarter of the year, hitting $1.6 trillion. And delinquencies on those loans also increased. It says a record number, 22.4 million renters were spending more than 30% of their income on rent and utilities. So it's just, it's a bad, uh, it, it, it's a very, very bad picture all around. And here we have, of course, the main reason why they will probably have to replace Biden. And this is the point we don't want to gloss over, that if Biden was falling apart mentally, if he was in this, this state of deep and obvious decline, if he was rambling and forgetting things and having Alzheimer's moments on camera five times a week, but the economy was in good shape and people were doing reasonably well in their lives, then I think they would just run with it and they'd keep him. And they'd drag him to the finish line and they'd wait for him to die in office in his second term, which if he, if God forbid he gets a second term, is going to happen. You know, it would be another unprecedented moment in American history, not only because we're electing someone into their eight, someone who's, that would be what, 82 years old at that point. But we'd also be electing someone who everybody knows is, is not going to, uh, if he lives to the end of his term, he, he's not even going to be physically um, able to move around. I mean, if, if he makes it to the end, he's going to be bedridden if he, if he even makes it. So, but... If it wasn't for the economy piece of it, then I think that's probably what they would do. They'd say, let's just get the, through this, uh, get him to the finish line, and then, you know, and then, and, then, and then we'll worry about it. And then when he dies in office or he becomes totally incapacitated, we can't even pretend anymore, uh, we'll figure it out then. And I think that that has been their plan basically up until now, but it's not possible to do that anymore. And especially when on top of it all, Americans are suffering financially to such a deep, pervasive extent. Um, you know, it's not, it's not that something like credit card debt is entirely Biden's fault, obviously, but as everything gets more and more expensive and people have, uh, don't have jobs that keep up with the cost of living, credit card debt piles up as well. And it all adds to this picture of misery and decline so much that, you know, even if Biden was 50 years old, uh, he, he'd probably still lose to Trump. And you add in the senility and it's likely an insurmountable thing for him politically. One other thing about credit card debt, this is to me one of the many, many arguments against student loan forgiveness. You know, it's never made any sense. Uh, Well, I understand politically, I understand the political ploy, but it makes no moral sense to treat student loan debt as this special thing that must be forgiven and to treat college graduates as special victims deserving of this quote unquote forgiveness. When meanwhile, you've got trillions of dollars in other kinds of debt, credit card debt, car loans, mortgages, trillions and trillions of dollars. Um, and, and, and that debt impacts a far, far larger number of, of people. Um, and credit cards and mortgages and car loans, these are not extravagant. It's not like a, co- a college loan where you're signing up to purchase this useless university education for a six-figure sum. Like going to college, for many people, going to college is automatically a reckless, ridiculous, unjustifiable decision. Not for everybody who goes to college, but for a large number of people who go to college, it's, it is, it's, it's a reckless and stupid thing to do. Buying a home to live in and a car to drive and taking out a credit card, these are not in that category. These are just normal things people have to do to live their lives. Um, so why in God's name 
would we expect the people who, who, who collectively have trillions of dollars of debt themselves, I would expect them to chip in to pay off the debt of college graduates. It just doesn't, it's never made any sense at all. All right, here's a fun story out of Illinois. Uh, we know, of course, that Illinois is, is renowned for uh, electing the absolute worst political leaders this country has ever seen. Barack Obama, obviously, being a prime example. Um, but in general, we must say that the voters in this state, well, Democrat voters specifically, which is most of them, um, the voters in that state, frankly, no offense to them, are some of the dumbest people in the country. Uh, when you look at who they choose to lead them, it's, it's just, it's remarkable. Um, and I think in general, we should be shaming voters much more for the horrifically stupid decisions that they make. And uh, we can start here. So that brings us to this. Uh, this is a story about a, a mayor in a small town in the state um, who has herself and found herself in some some hot water in a in a in a scandal. Um, here's a report on that. Watch. Y'all should be ashamed of y'all stuff. Y'all black. Y'all are black, and y'all sitting up here beating and attacking on a black woman that's in power. Y'all should be ashamed of yourselves. Dalton's difficulties got worse in recent weeks with water main breaks, Henyard blames on trustee budget cuts. Then four people were shot and injured last week, leaving nerves frayed and Henyard's opponents pointing out her sizable security detail. It's unfortunate that politics are being played, but what has happened is a million dollars out of my budget has been cut because of politics. Y'all forget I am the leader. They want to hear from the mayor. If y'all ain't learned that yet. The mayor, not the trustees that don't do nothing, that only run their mouth. Y'all don't do no work, no work. Tiffany Henyard considers herself something of a crusader, but one who's clearly annoyed by questions from a rebellious group of Dalton trustees who are in a standoff with her over spending. At the end of the day, vendors are not being paid. Board approved it. The vendors are not being paid. How about you be a good leader, bring RFPs to the forefront, so not just us, but the residents and everybody else in America know how the money is being spent. WGN Investigates has cataloged tens of thousands of taxpayer dollars spent on trips, meals, and more by Tiffany Henyard and her allies in Dalton and on the Thornton Township Board, where she's the supervisor. Township credit card records show Henyard and other officials spent more than $67,000 on trips to Portland, Austin, Atlanta, and New York City. Many of the flights were first class. So were the accommodations. In Atlanta, Henyard and her team stayed at the Four Seasons Hotel, costing taxpayers more than $9,000. In New York, the bill came to $13,000. Henyard has refused to explain the specific purpose of the trips or why they travel in such style. Okay, so this is the mayor of a very small town. She's, pay, I, I don't know if they mentioned in the report, but she's paying herself a $300,000 salary. Uh, she's using tax money for extravagant vacations. She has an expensive security detail for some reason. And this is the uh, woman is the mayor of a town of like five people or something. Maybe it might be a few, but I think it's like 20,000. So a few more than five, still a very small town. And yet she's paying herself a higher salary than, than they give Supreme Court justices, okay? Um, but you now she raises a good point. She says, hey, I'm a black woman in power. That's her whole argument. Uh, Mrs. Mayor, you're, you're scamming taxpayers out of millions of dollars. Yeah? Well, I'm a black woman. All oh, right, okay, never mind. Well, it, if, well why didn't you mention that before? Um, like, I'm not going to harp on the point about the, the dumb voters. And, and, you know, this is a very small town, so it's, it's not that many voters. But it's still very, it's quite symptomatic of uh, the larger problem. It's like, why in God's name would anyone vote for this person? How does that, even in a town of 20,000, how does that happen? Openly corrupt. She has a, obviously a single-digit IQ. It's like, she's not charismatic or charming or something. And that's, and that's one of the things we're talking about, our, our very unimpressive leaders in this country. Um, it's one thing when you have a leader who's uh, corrupt, even incompetent, evil, you know, all, all that is bad. But if they're charismatic and intelligent 
and uh, and they're good at giving inspirational speeches and and all that sort of thing, then at least you understand how that sort of person uh, manages to to get into power. Like you you can understand. Historically, that happens all the time. So it's not a mystery anyway. You can look at that and you say, well, okay, yeah, that, that's how it happened. It shouldn't have happened. I'm, I'm, uh, it's unfortunate that it did. But I, I understand, intellectually, I can understand that. Um, but for us, we just have these people who are, yeah, they're corrupt and evil. So they've got, they check those boxes off. And they're incompetent, check that box. But then on top of it, they don't have anything else. There's no charisma. There's, no, there's nothing. Empty. These are just empty vessels. There's no way you could listen to these people speak for even two minutes and be impressed. Like most of our politicians, you listen. No one's walking away and say, "Wow, that was impressive." I'm pretty impressed with that. No one. No one. And they, they managed to assume power all over the country at every level. Um, and meanwhile, the you know the mayor plays the race card absolutely brazenly, of course. I did go check this. Based on what I found on the census website, the city of Dalton is 92% black. So basically everybody in the whole town is black. They've got like three white people in the entire town. And, uh, and yet the mayor still plays the race card. Um, and and I, I think it's because we don't fully grasp just the extent to which this kind of thinking, this left-wing victim mentality, the, the victim pyramid that we've talked about and gone through, I don't think we grasp the extent to which this is just fundamentally ingrained into the minds of many people in this country. We treat it as a joke, but for someone like this mayor, it's, it's not even a put on. She's, I don't think she's pretending, it's not an act. Her mind, her consciousness is trained to perceive any pushback, any setback as automatically a product of racism. Like, I don't even think she's capable of seeing it any other way. Um, for someone like her, racism is as pervasive and as undeniable as gravity. It's just a force of nature that affects everything all the time. And you can't see it, but it's there. And that's how people have been trained to see the world. All right. Um, the New York Post reports on a Hollywood actor who started counseling because his movie got bad reviews. Here's what it says. He was eternally scared. He was eternally scarred. Eternally. Okay, well, it's a play on words, I see. Um, actor and comedian Kumail Nanjiani had to seek professional help after reading all the negative reviews of his Marvel film, Eternals. The reviews were bad, and I was too aware of it. Nanjiani, 45, said on an appearance on a podcast. Uh, it was really, really hard because Marvel thought the movie was going to be really, really, really well-reviewed. So they lifted the embargo early and put it in some fancy movie festivals, and they sent us on a big global tour to promote the movie right as the embargo lifted. Uh, he continued, I think there was some weird soup in the atmosphere for why that movie got slammed so much, and I think not much of it has to do with the actual quality of the movie. It was really hard, and that was when I thought it was unfair to me and unfair to my wife, Emily, and uh, I can't approach my work this way anymore. Some S has to change, so I started counseling. I still talk to my therapist about that. So I guess this is another, uh, you know, this is a, another I told you so moment. Um, this is exactly the problem with therapy, as I've tried to argue. And it's not that therapy is always a bad thing, okay? It's not that everyone who's in counseling right now is wasting their time or doing more harm to themselves than good. It's, it, that's not the case for everybody. There are exceptions. There are exceptions to this problem with therapy that I have described. But in many cases, this is therapy. Now, it's usually not Hollywood actors, but it's, although I'm sure every Hollywood actor is in therapy, which probably tells you everything you need to know. We would just assume the number of Hollywood actors in therapy, it's probably like 98% or something or more. Um, but very often, it's someone who has experienced a relatively minor setback. You got bad reviews on your movie. Okay, like it, it sucks. It's hard, it, but it's not a big deal. So you got someone who's dealing with a relatively minor setback. Someone who's just dealing with normal human things, criticism, rejection, failure, normal human things, and then goes to therapy and dwells on it and wallows in self-pity, makes it into a much bigger deal than it really is. And um, all of a sudden, you start with a stubbed toe, and next thing you know, you're in therapy, digging back into your past and complaining that your mom didn't pay enough attention to you when you were a child or whatever. 
So when Kumail goes to the therapist and cries because his crappy movie got bad reviews, what does the therapist say? And I don't know the therapist. Maybe it's actually a good therapist. Maybe the therapist says the right thing, but I suspect probably not. Because here's what the therapist should say in that circumstance. Uh, The therapist should say, well, Kamal, people didn't like your movie because it was bad. Uh, You're a grown man. You need to be able to deal with criticism. Get over yourself. Stop pouting like a little baby and move on with your life. And I, I swear to you, if you come back to me again crying about bad reviews, I will punch you in the throat. That's what I will do. That's what the therapist should say. Like, words to that effect, okay? Their own variation of it. Maybe leaving out the violent threat. But everything else, uh, you could take or leave that part of it. Everything else, that's what the therapist, that's the correct thing to say. Um, It's not to say, well, let's sit down and talk. Oh, let's work through that. You're sad because people didn't like the move. Let's work through it. Let's work through that together. No, let's not work through it. I'm not going to work through that with you. Get out of here with that. That's that's not. It does not rise to the level of a therapy session. You're wasting my time. You are wasting my time. Get the hell out of my office. But the point is that there's 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 nothing a therapist can or should try to do for somebody like that, because you do just need to get over it. You need to grow the hell up and and stop sobbing. That's it. And any any attempt to unpack it, you know, to go back into the past and understand the roots of of his anguish blah, blah, whatever. Anything you do like that, it, it legitimizes his immaturity and his bratty overreaction to a relatively minor setback. So when someone says, I want to talk for an hour about why my feelings are hurt because I got bad reviews on a Hollywood on my Hollywood film, uh, a film that did in fact suck, uh, you know, when someone says that, the, the, the appropriate answer is no. Like that... And, and that's the thing with, with therapy is that people, it gives people an opportunity to dwell on, on because they can pay someone to listen to them. And if it wasn't for the therapist, for a lot of these problems that people have, nobody would listen. But that's my point. It's like nobody should listen to that. You, you just should not be complaining about that. You, you really shouldn't. Um, who, without therapy, Kamal, who could he go to to cry that his movie got bad reviews? You know, he could complain about it to his friends. He wouldn't be able to sit for an hour and complain about it. Because everybody else in his life would say, dude, I got bigger problems than this. Really? You're a millionaire actor. You made this movie that, like, let's be honest, wasn't great. People didn't like it. You want, you want to mention it for 30 seconds? Fine, I'll pat you on the head. But I'm not going to sit for an hour and listen to this. This self-indulgent, whiny, self-pitying nonsense. That's what anyone else in his life would say. And, but that's why, but that's why therapy exists. You know, people go to, not always, people often go to therapy because they have these whiny, self-indulgent complaints that they know they can't say to anyone else. Because if they do, those other people will be too honest with them or won't be interested because they shouldn't be interested because it's not that interesting. And the only thing you can really do with those complaints is just get over it. There is no other answer to give you. That's it. That's all you can do. What can you do about the fact that you're sad that people didn't like the movie? All you can do is just get over it. There's no answer. Just get over it. That's it. And if you won't get over it, then okay, then be miserable for the rest of your life. That's your choice. One other thing uh, I wanted to mention. This is kind of a... Okay, well, so I wanted to talk about this. This is a... I've had this for a few days, and it's a headline. This is from The Blaze. An article came out a few days ago. And the headline is, sure, the left has Taylor Swift but we have cat turd. Now, let me just say right off the bat, I've got uh, nothing against the Blaze. I love the Blaze. I used to work there. They're great. I like everyone there. Uh, they do fantastic work. And as for cat turd, you know, he's, he's a conservative Twitter account, if you didn't know, and many people don't, which is part of the problem here. Uh, but I got nothing against him. It's a fine account. I don't follow the account, but it gets retweeted in my feed all the time. And it's fine. I got I, no issues there at all. With all that said, I, I disagree stridently with this article. And um, in fact, I, I think it captures so much of what is wrong with modern conservatism these days. So let me just read a little bit of this. It's a bit of this article that is not meant to be self-deprecating in any way. This is not satire. 
At first, I thought it was. When I read the headline, oh, we don't need Taylor Swift, we have cat turd. I honestly thought at first it was a, it was a I, I just glanced at it. I thought it was a, it was a pretty funny Babylon B t- headline. It's not. It's 100% serious. So, uh, so, you know, the article begins talking for a while about Taylor Swift and the NFL and the whole Swift-Kelsey-NFL storyline that people have been so fascinated by, and it's all culminating in the Super Bowl this weekend. And then the writer, uh, Albin Sadar, gets to this. He says, yes, the NFL has gone woke, and the upcoming Super Bowl is appealing to many in that peculiar tamp- camp. I, for one, will be tuning out, but I'm sure things will work out for the best. It will at least be an exciting, close enough game, and the result will wrap up a wonderful season-long narrative. So, where are the stories from those on the right? Why are we always playing defense? Where is our offense? Okay, so far, so good. Those are good questions. Where are our stories? People can complain about Taylor Swift and the NFL all they want, but the simple fact of the matter is that that these are stories, and these are people that captivate the public. Public loves the NFL. A lot of people in public love Taylor Swift. Um, I don't like Taylor. It doesn't matter. People are interested in this. So we can complain about that on and on and on. But what do we have? Like, we could say to the public, oh, don't pay attention to that. That's stupid. That don't pay... But what else are we giving them to pay attention to instead? What are we saying? Oh, no, that's dumb. Here's something great. Right? You don't need that for entertainment. You don't need to pay. We got this. This is so much better. So where is that? And that's the um, question that, that the writer's asking. It's a good question. The problem is that he settles on cat turd, the Twitter account. Um, we have a Twitter account named after feline fecal matter that trolls the left. And it's so much better than Taylor Swift. Uh, So, he continues. Recently, I watched Tucker Carlson interview the internet sensation on X, who goes by the moniker Cat Turd. Cat Turd, of course, is not his real name, like William or Mike or Carl Cat Turd. Nonetheless, he has an interesting story about how he went from being a drug-using, tie-dye-wearing, honest-to-goodness hippie to championing the common-sense viewpoint on the right. What happened? While working construction, Cat Turd and his builder buddies would listen to Rush Limbaugh on the radio. Because he overwhelmingly agreed with Rush and his arguments against left, Cat Turd soon became, became, uh, came to realize that he himself was a conservative. Cat Turd decided to start tweeting his own opinions and before long found himself internet famous. His tweets even got under the, the skin of the high and mighty, such as former U.S. Representative Adam Kinzinger. Uh, now, why would a relatively small player in the culture wars be used here as an example of pushback against the Taylor Swifts of the world? Yes, why? Well, he says, I think it comes down to what's going on behind the scenes. The left controls all the big messaging outlets known as the mainstream media, but the right seems to have a whole army of rabble-rousers behind the scenes in social media. In political days of yore, Nixon in the 1970s, the term silent majority referred to the folks who were a strong, powerful, motivating force in the culture, but did not have a media megaphone. Something very similar is stirring today. Bold, outspoken champions on the right may have been shoved to the sidelines, but add to their continued influence rising stars like Charlie Kirk and Glenn Beck and Eric Metaxas, and let's just say that America's personal 2024 Super Bowl, this year's presidential election, is far from played out. Be encouraged. Our movement is grassroots. And we can build on the conservative clawing and scratching of a guy named Cat Turd. Anything is possible. Okay. So just a few problems here. First, to state the obvious, um, comparing Cat Turd's influence on the culture to Taylor Swift is like comparing the light emitted by a desk lamp to the sun. I mean, the, these are two things that exist on such a vastly, on such vastly different planes. Okay, these are such vastly different planes of existence that the comparison is incoherent. I mean, it's like saying, it's like going into a cave with a with a dying flashlight and saying, "We don't need the sun. We got this thing. Who needs the sun when you got this?" Um, and this is obviously the case, no matter how you feel about Taylor Swift. This is the other thing we have to be able to do as conservatives. We have to be able to like analyze these things even when they involve people we don't like. Um, you don't have to like her. I don't care if you like her or not. It's just an objective question about cultural power and influence. And as far as that goes, Taylor Swift is selling out stadiums worldwide and Cat Turd uh, would, you know, I, I would be surprised if he could fill a conference room you know, at the Cincinnati Marriott, um, which is not a knock against him. It's, it's not. His right-wing Twitter fame is, is a very narrow, narrow lane to be in. Um, and what this all sort of papers over is that we have a real problem on the right. Our problem is that, is that we don't have a Taylor Swift. Um, 
We don't have anyone close to her. Like our Taylor Swift is not cat turd. Okay. It's not anybody. All of the cultural figures who are closest to Taylor Swift in terms of relevance and impact on the culture are all also on the left. And most of them are even further to the left than she is. And these are the people who are making culture. So on the right, for the most part, historically, we've been the cultural commentators. So the, the left makes the culture and then we comment on it. We, we are commenting on the things that they are making and doing. But commenting on culture will never move people and never influence people and never inspire and drive people the way that the culture itself will, obviously. Now, this is something that we want to, as you know, change at The Daily Wire. Uh, and we are, we are working on that. Uh, it's, it's hard. It's extremely hard. You know, it's a very hard thing to do. Everything's stacked against you. If you want to go, when you've had this dynamic for so many decades of the, the left makes culture, we comment on it, to then say, you know what, we want to get in the culture-making business, it's a very hard thing to do. And, um, and uh, it's a long haul, you know, and it's difficult. And we are very, very far away from Taylor Swift at this point. That's just the reality of the situation. You have to be honest about it, deluding ourselves about it, telling ourselves that we don't need to make culture, and we don't need to tell interesting stories and we don't need to be truly influential because we have conservative Twitter accounts is just an insane level of self-delusion. And these stories, you know, he says, well, this is a fascinating story. It's a story about how a construction worker decided to start a Twitter account and complain about Biden. It's like, that's not a fascinating, that's not a fascinating story. I'm, I'm sorry, it's just not. That's not, that's not a story that's going to grab people by their hearts and 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 speak to them at a deep visceral level and 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 they're going to find fascinating it's just not and uh 95% of the time when those stories are being told it's it's being told by the left that again it's just the reality there's nothing wrong with commentary it's what i do for a living uh it's what i'm doing at this very moment i'm making commentary about commentary i understand the uh i understand the 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 inception levels of that we're dealing with here. But uh, I just want to be start with, a, with honesty. And we can't lie to ourselves and tell ourselves that cultural commentary is a sufficient replacement for cultural creation. And, and you know, honestly, even the commentary, you know, not all cultural commentary is made equal. Uh, commentary can be important. I certainly hope so. I wouldn't do it for a living if it wasn't. But uh, even a lot of the commentary on the right barely rises to the level of actual commentary. Because to do commentary is to offer insight, analysis. It's to have a unique perspective, saying interesting things about what's happening. That, that's commentary. And, and, and again, it has, it has a place. It has value. But a lot of what we call commentary on the right is really just sort of this banal, bland regurgitation. It's, it's this stuff that's carefully calibrated to repeat back to the audience what it already thinks. And uh, there's really no attempt to say anything interesting at all or to take any chances at all. Another problem the conservatives have, it's, some of that is just ingrained. You know, we're conservative. That's why we call ourselves conservative. So taking risks, you know, to, 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 to actually make interesting art, you know, if you want to get into the culture-making business, you got to take risks. It requires, an, it requires an, a willingness to take risks. Conservatives historically are not the, the best at that. And then you find that even with the commentary. So much of the conservative commentary, it's like, it's like, it's the, so it's as safe as could be. It's like, this is the lane you're supposed to be in. These are the topics you're supposed to talk about. These are the things you're supposed to say. And for a large number, though not all, of the conservative commentators, they, they just stay right in that lane, you know, uh, never venturing outside of it because that's a risk. So those are all things we need to be honest about and we need to, and we need to change uh, so that maybe one day down the line, we can say, you know, we don't need Taylor Swift. We have fill in the blank. Um, but we're not there yet. Are you struggling with back taxes or unfiled returns this year? The IRS is escalating collections by adding 20,000 new agents. In these challenging times, your best defense is to use Tax Network USA. Along with hiring thousands of new agents and field officers, the IRS has kicked off 2024 by sending over 5 million pay-up letters to those who have unfiled tax returns or balances owed. These guys are not your friends. Don't waive your right and speak with these agents on your own without backup. Tax Network USA, a trusted tax relief firm, has saved over a billion dollars in back taxes for their clients, and they can help you secure the best deal possible. Whether you owe $10,000 or $10 million, 
they can help, whether it's businesses or personal taxes, whether you have the means to pay or if you're on a fixed income. Tax Network can help finally resolve your tax burdens once and for all. Seize control of your financial future now and don't let tax issues overpower you. Contact Tax Network USA for immediate relief and expert guidance. Call 1-800-245-6000 or visit tnusa.com Walsh. Turn to Tax Network USA and find your path to financial peace of mind. That's tnusa.com Walsh. Valentine's Day is coming up fast, and Jeremy's has the perfect gift to surprise your better half. Whether you're shopping for him or her, Jeremy's has a bundle that they'll love. From delicious chocolates to smooth razors to the iconic Leftist Tears Tumblr to celebrate, Jeremy's is offering a deal you will absolutely love. Get a 20% discount on all Valentine's Day bundles. That's right, 20% off. But you have to act fast because today is the last day for express shipping on time for Valentine's Day. This offer is only here for a limited time. Go to jeremysrazors.com right now and order your Valentine's Day bundle before they're gone. Jeremy's Valentine's Day sale, the best way to treat your Valentine and yourself. Now let's get to our daily cancellation. Well, as we know, a lot of uh, stupidity and filth goes viral on TikTok every day. But every once in a while, something wholesome and inspirational manages to climb its way out of the muck and gain some traction on the platform. Only problem is that much of the time, even the wholesome stuff ends up being much darker than it seems. So case in point, last week, a TikTok influencer recorded herself helping a homeless man who stopped her and asked for some tea. So she gave him uh, a lot more than tea. She, she took him for medicine. She'd get him some food. Uh, she eventually paid for a hotel room that he could stay in. And this video has been viewed millions of times now. People are very, uh, very inspired by it. Here's a snippet of it. Some hot tea. Yeah. Damn. From where? I'm walking to Trey Joe's. You want to walk with me? Trey Joe's? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. And we can stop by Starbucks or something. Say hi to my TikTok. All right. So we must have gone to CVS real quick. So we in here. He's about to uh, show me where he got to go because he said he's in pain. So he just got insurance yesterday, but it takes 45 days. For his insurance to be active, so I told him like I'm just gonna pay for it. So he got his medication. Do you recognize this one? I think this is the one you're supposed to have. I'm gonna ask him. So we have Starbucks now. Um, what size do you want? Do you want like a a small one? Okay. Can I get a grande green tea, please? Okay. Here's your green tea. Do you want some napkins? So the CVS we were just at only had one of the medications, but the one he really needs, they don't have it. And he's in pain. He literally cannot walk with me. So I tell him like, stay here. I'm gonna walk to the other CVS and I'm gonna see if they got it. So I made it to the other CVS and the guy was so nice. He gave us a heavy discount. He was like, I bought a good discount. And then I'm waiting for his prescription to get refilled. So I got to sit here and wait. Guys, I'm so happy they had his medicine. Okay, so she gets the medicine, brings it to him, uh, rents him a hotel room. All very nice, very generous. Um, now, of course, I always have to be that guy. So I do feel compelled to point out that the purest and most meaningful kind of charity is the kind that you just do for somebody without extensively documenting your generosity and posting it on social media, right? And you think about the process that goes into making a video like this. You have to you have to video, you have to film every step of the way and then sit down and edit it and everything. Um, so my ability to be inspired by charitable actions that go viral on the internet is always somewhat hampered by the fact that they usually go viral because the person who did the charitable thing has made sure to alert the world to the fact. Like when you go to the world and say, "Hey, world, check out this great thing I did for this person. Check it out. Look at this." So maybe this woman would have done all that even if she didn't have a TikTok account and wasn't filming it. But unfortunately. We know that wholesome content is a lucrative category of content on TikTok and elsewhere. And for a lot of people who post that kind of content, it is only content. They're doing it because it is content. Now, I don't know if that's the case for this woman. Let's give her the benefit of the doubt and assume optimistically that it isn't. Let's assume that the content was a secondary concern and she was really just primarily concerned with helping her fellow man. Let's assume that she does this all the time for people and she just happened to film it this one time. Maybe that's true. Let's just assume that it is. Well, Sadly, even with that assumption, this story does not have a happy ending. Uh, a GoFundMe was started for the homeless guy, who we now know is named Alonzo Douglas Hebron. 
And it raised over $400,000 in the span of a few days. So this man was well on his way to becoming a millionaire. But then the other shoe, as it so often does, dropped. Watch. New questions tonight about a GoFundMe page that has raised hundreds of thousands of dollars for a man who is experiencing homelessness in D.C. The main question, what happens to all that money if it's determined that he is a danger to the community? Fox 5's Bob Barnard live in Northwest now to try and help us sort this all out. Hi, Bob. Hey there, Marina. D.C. police say Alonzo, the homeless man seen in that TikTok video, is the same man who attacked a woman four years ago outside this church here. D.C. police say Alonzo Hebron walked up to that woman sleeping outside the church, both of them homeless, put a scarf over her head and, you see, repeatedly punched her. He was charged in the case. As far as we know, most recently was in a halfway house last summer. He escaped, was brought back by U.S. Marshals. He's now obviously back out on the streets. Here now the victim of that attack and people reacting to the dilemma, what now to do about all that money? I'm speechless. I do not understand how a human being can act like this. He's a sociopath. He does not have a sense of remorse. So this poor homeless man who just wanted some tea only four years ago, apparently, barbarically assaulted a random woman while she was sleeping. And for those listening to the audio podcast, you should know this was a vicious, brutal assault. It's on, it's on video. You can see it. And he pummels this defenseless woman over and over again in the head. And this was just his most recent assault. A few years before that, he stabbed somebody in the neck with a screwdriver. And he has multiple other assaults and violent crimes on his rap sheet. Uh, so he should not have been on the streets at all, clearly. He should have been drinking his tea behind bars. You know, he, he needs a jail cell, not a hotel room. He's a danger to the community. Certainly the last thing he needs is $400,000 from GoFundMe, so it's a good thing that they didn't release the money, and I hope that they don't. But, you know, this is very often what, what GoFundMe is all about. Of course, these crowdfunding sites are used for worthy causes all the time, but they're also places where a bunch of strangers can get swept up in the emotions of the latest viral charity case, it's a way for people to make themselves feel good, you know, feel like philanthropists for donating a few dollars to someone who, for all they know, is not remotely deserving of the money and who, for all they know, may be more hurt by it than helped. Uh, yes, it may be well-meaning. Yes, you're trying to help. Yes, there are certainly worse ways you could waste your $15 GoFundMe contribution, but there are people around you in your actual life, your family, friends, community members, who could use that help. So, so just tossing money at some stranger you know absolutely nothing about with, with no clue how the money will be spent is foolish. It's especially foolish when the random person is homeless, okay? This is the part that people, people struggle with the most. Uh, every time that I uh, get a little real about the homeless problem and about the types of people who generally end up homeless, I'm accused of being cruel and uncaring and mean and everything else. But unfortunately, my point is proven time and time again. Now, sure, there are decent, sane, normal, good, hardworking people who fall in hard times, end up in desperate situations, and wind up on the street. That does happen. But it is rare. It is very rare. Most of the time, in most cases, people are homeless for a reason. There's a reason why they are homeless. And the reason is that they are some combination of utterly dysfunctional, self-destructive, insane, and drug-addicted. And many who fall into that category also happen to be dangerous criminals. In fact, watching that, that uh, video, at, at the, when you go, the original TikTok video, you see this woman in the hotel room with the guy, like setting him up in the hotel room that she bought, she rented for him. And, you know, I'm, I'm, even though I know that it worked out because the video was posted, I'm still cringing watching that. Like, this is incredibly dangerous. You, you went in th with this, this man, this homeless man into a hotel room? I mean, this is an incredibly dangerous thing to do. She, she is lucky that she's still alive. And if you have any concept of, of what homelessness is and who most of these people are, you would never do that. So if you're giving $400,000 to a random homeless guy, the chances that you're throwing money at a crazy, violent drifter is pretty high. And even if he isn't crazy and or isn't violent, it's still going to be a disastrously bad idea in nearly every case to give large sums of money to a homeless person. As I've tried to explain many times, most of these people aren't homeless simply because they have no money and they have no home. Okay, And, that, and, and anytime I say that, there's always the idiots who laugh. <laughs> what do you mean? What do you mean they're not homeless because they don't have a home? That's the definition of homeless. No, you morons. Give them money and a home and they'll be homeless again 15 minutes later. Do you understand that? 
So that clearly shows that the problem is not simply they don't have money. No, give them money. Most of these people on the street have been given lots of money. They, it, depending on where they are, panhandling is, is, is lucrative. Many of them make more money than people that work minimum wage and have been living in apartments. You know, it's, you can make hundreds of dollars a day doing that. Where does the money go? Where does it go? Does it, does it the magical money fairy come and take it? No, they spend it on drugs is what they do. That's why they're still homeless. They're not, they're not, they're not st- stashing it away and hanging on to it. What's the last, of all the homeless people, how many of them have a stash somewhere of money that they're keeping and they're saving so they can start a, a bank account, you know, or they can get a hotel room at least? Like how many do you think? It, almost none. And even the most rudimentary understanding of human nature makes all of this obvious. But many people today, despite being humans and having a nature, still somehow have little understanding of human nature. They don't get it. I don't understand how you could not get it. They've been indoctrinated into a diluted, cartoonish view of the human condition. It's a view that lacks the basic intuitiveness that you would expect any member of the human species to have about their own species. But this is what modern society has become, which is why all those GoFundMe donors are somehow surprised to learn that the guy who was living on the street and who they tried to suddenly put into the top 5% of all income earners is actually a dangerous predator. That should not be a surprise twist ending. That should not surprise you. But it does. And that's why everybody involved in this ill-fated fundraiser is today canceled. That'll do it for the show today and this week. Thanks for watching. Have a great weekend. Talk to you on Monday. Godspeed. One stage. One night. No limits. Don't miss the epic return of the God King, Jeremy Boring, with Ben Shapiro, Matt Walsh, Candace Owens, Michael Knowles, and Andrew Clavin. Backstage. Watch it live Tuesday night at 7 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Central, exclusively on the Daily Wire Plus app and on dailywire.com.